This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Wednesday, October 18th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist from Las Vegas. So Jonathan Prince was on yesterday and we talked about debate prep and what Trump should do, what Hillary should do. And he was a great guest and it was a good conversation. I commend you to it. But it does strike me that when we talk about Donald Trump debater, Donald Trump tactics, you know what we do? We take these institutions of a democratic society and we use them to elevate Trump. And he does not deserve that. When he dons the cloak of democracy, it's a garment that is ill-gotten. You know, there are two analogies I was thinking of um, in terms of power and ruling, and one is Excalibur. And when Arthur pulled Excalibur from the stone, you knew that he was worthy. But I think the better analogy from a similar milieu is the Iron Throne, in that any idiot can sit on the Iron Throne, even the Mad King. Oh, by the way, this is a Game of Thrones thing. Should I say, by the way, the other thing is an Arthurian legend thing? I wonder which one is more cultural purchase at the moment. Anyway... I do think, because this is how the media, perhaps this is how all of us in our subconscious, just think when you're on the debate stage, when you're a debater, well, that means something. That means you must have strategy. That means you must have standing. That means you must be something other than Captain Cuckoo Pants who wandered in through the wrong door. But no, it's not like he was proved worthy through the primaries of Excalibur, through through the gauntlet. He just was a guy who wound up, plopped his orange butt on the Iron Throne. And when we talk about Trump's strategy, it doesn't matter what his strategy may be in his own mind, and he doesn't even have strategy. He is just so incoherent. Every On an individual sentence level, it is such a word coleslaw. It is such a mishmash that he never gets his point across to anyone who isn't already on board. And when you talk about the big picture, remember last debate, he brought a bunch of uh, Bill Clinton accusers, yet by the end, you didn't know what the point of that was. It wasn't emphasized again and again. It's not becoming a theme. It was just one of the hundred things that he flung against the wall like a monkey with his poop. And what happens then is the media gets to be the one to pick and choose which of the statements they'll play. So they'll play, you'd be in jail, you'd be in jail, and rightly point out, wow, we've never had a presidential candidate threatening to jail his rival upon election. You give up whatever message discipline, because he's undisciplined, whatever message discipline brings, you give that up when you're a candidate like Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump was almost perfectly created to be a terrible debater, to be terrible in any sort of formalized institution. Yeah, I know he's not a politician, but maybe as adults, we should recognize that politician isn't a 100% pejorative term. Politician means 
listening to constituents and understanding policies and perhaps framing an argument that could resonate with the body politic. In Trump, we have a candidate who one, knows nothing, two, won't take advice, and three, has entered into a closed loop of acolytes and cheering adoring crowds so he'll never be challenged. So keep this all in mind when after the debate, someone tries to tell you that Trump stopped the bleeding or Trump exceeded expectations or Trump did anything, then be totally incoherent and have a mismatch of messages. Sure, maybe one or two things will sting Hillary. Maybe he'll do one or two outrageous things. He's bringing Barack Obama's brother to the debate. I guess he thinks he's Michael Corleone playing mind games with Frankie Pantangeli. It was between the brothers, Kay. Wait, he's 14 points down in the poll. What are you talking about? Yeah, the brothers. Trump always thinks he's playing mind games. I likened him to Bobby Riggs trying to think he's doing a number on Billie Jean King. Just keep it all in mind because I don't know what's going to happen, except I do know what's going to happen. What always is going to happen, which is Trump is going to show himself for the rhetorician that he is, which is to say a poor and inadequate one. So today on the show, she will not be silenced. You'll watch a debate between two presidential candidates, but we've got another one, Dr. Jill Stein. Dr. Jill Stein, I interviewed her while she was wearing her OR scrubs. Oh, are they? And this morning, well, actually, I'm in the Western time zone. So for me, it might get under the wire for tonight. But in most places, it'll probably be at 2, 3 in the morning Eastern time. There will be a just rapid response from the debate and from that spin room. We'll see what uh, Trump surrogate Boris has to say. But now the good doctor is in. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dr. Jill Stein, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So when uh, people run for office, they represent a raft of policy proposals, and you and the Green Party certainly do, but they also sometimes put forth initiatives or clever ideas to solve problems. Uh, We know your stance, but here's my specific idea that no one's thinking of. Do you have one of those, a clever initiative that the big parties aren't thinking of? Oh, man, I'd say just about all of them. (laughs) You know, like, like the Green New Deal, which is an emergency jobs program to solve the emergency of climate change. I mean, this is sort of the elephant in the room. It's absolutely essential if we're going to get out here alive, but we're not really seeing anything, you know, from the two presidential candidates of real substance and of real, uh, you know, that would really be a game changer here. And we need a game changer. We're not seeing anything like that on the wars, you know, on the expanding wars and the crisis of U.S. foreign policy based on regime change and, and military intervention. This has been an utter disaster. It is exhausting our budget. It takes up 54% of our discretionary budget for a defense department, which is truly an offense department. And it takes almost half of your income taxes. And what do we have to show for it? Right. So that is the policy being against the war. But what is the way you're going to pull the troops back in a way that, for instance, won't allow Iraq to collapse, which was a problem. Obama promised to pull the troops back, tried to do it. 
got sucked in again. Well, right. Shouldn't have been there in the first place. But, but not his fault, not your fault if you become president. Well, uh, you know, then there's the surge into Afghanistan, which was his doing. Uh, we are bombing seven countries right now. Yesterday, we we uh, fired, uh, you know, missiles at uh, at Yemen. I mean, there is no end to U.S. incursions. We have this terrific power uh, of militarism, which is all over the planet. And when you've got your finger on a big trigger, it's hard not to pull that trigger. And we're doing it all over the place. So here's the solution, which is not rocket science either. It's like you don't have to be a genius to uh, come up with this. We need a weapons embargo in the Middle East. And we need to freeze the bank accounts of those countries who insist on continuing to fund terrorist extremism around the world. Hillary Clinton herself identified the Saudis as still the major funder of uh, extremist terrorism around the world. Uh, what about Yemen? Should we be taking a side in Yemen? Well, we already are taking a side yeah, in should Yemen. We be? Yeah, we certainly should not be taking a side in Yemen. We are we are party to the war crimes that are being committed by Saudi Arabia, who's using cluster bombs, you know, made by us. And we've supp supplied a hundred billion dollars worth of weapons to the Saudis in the last decade. The Saudis, who've been massively committing war crimes and human rights abuses, it's against our own laws, the Leahy Bill, um, not you know, that requires we not sell weapons to human rights abusers. So just in uh, in accord with our own policies, we should not have anything to do with Yemen. Um, well, we what happens if the Houthis take over Yemen or if the Houthis turn that into a state where you could stage terrorism from? Well, you know, how much good is this doing us? You know, that, that mindset. Uh, where have we gotten? You know, the Taliban, where did the Taliban come from in the first place? You know, I mean, this... This is a series of uh, cycles of violence that you can ultimately trace back to uh, our fight against Soviet Union in Afghanistan, where the U.S., CIA, and the Saudi Arabia came up with this great idea for disrupting the Soviet Union, which was to create this international um, religious extremist force to disrupt the Soviet Union. And out of that, we trained Osama bin Laden. Uh, you know, we funded and armed this new international uh, extremist group, which out of which grew the Taliban. The Taliban is stronger today than at any time since we've been fighting them. But not more dangerous to the United States than when they were as training or on staging ground for Osama bin Laden. Well, I mean, but the let's United remember, States bombed right. Sudan when and we chased created, him out of Sudan. But that's 1980, created, and if you became president, it would be in 2016. So whatever right, the sins right. and mistakes of 1980. But what we can see clearly, you know, if we dare to look at the historic record here, is a series of cycles of violence. And it went from, you know, the Taliban, the Mujahideen, Jihadin, uh, which were, you know, supported and funded and armed by us, then to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And then out of the fight against Al-Qaeda, we generated ISIS. Uh, now we're going to fight ISIS and create the next version of terrorist extremism. So if it's we time to stop this cycle of violence. Where have we gotten? You know, trillions of dollars spent here. According to a Harvard study, it was $6 trillion for Afghanistan and Iraq if you add in the costs of caring for our wounded soldiers, which is enormous and uh, absolutely just 
justified and probably not enough uh, for what they deserve, actually. But we're talking many trillions of dollars. If you spread that $6 trillion out over the American public, that's about $50,000 per American family for these wars. And what exactly have we gotten for it? Failed states, mass refugee migrations, and worse terrorist threats. We need a new way forward. So- If the United States disengages in Yemen, uh, doesn't arm the Kurds, how does ISIS respond? Well, the point is uh, ISIS needs to be deprived of its nutrition and its its lifeblood. That's why we need to start an arms embargo. That's why we need to cut off the funding that flows through our allies in particular. That's why we need to convince Turkey— our ally, in theory, to close its border to the movement of jihadi militias across its border to reinforce ISIS. What kind of leverage do we have with Turkey, the Erdogan regime? How could we convince Turkey of that? Well, they're supposed to be a member of NATO. They are. Yeah. So we could pull that away. We could take that from them. Well, you know, we've got to try. You know, we've got to start somewhere. And the road that we've been going down, which is essentially a road that says, you know, let's just uh, shoot them up, you know, more bombs and bullets. That's been an utter catastrophe. We need to really dedicate ourselves to uh, another option here that is consistent with our future. But don't you question our United States involvement, continued involvement in NATO itself? Uh, That certainly needs to be revisited. Yes, it does. So if the United States disengages with NATO, what leverage do we have in Turkey? If NATO is the solution for Turkey, but if the United States shouldn't be in NATO, how do we get Turkey to do what we want? Well, NATO is a bigger bigger issue, Uh a a bigger issue that's going to take some long-term thinking and discussion. For example, uh, Andrew Basevich, a military historian at BU, you know, his suggestion is that we set a deadline for approximately, I think he said 2025, and that we work with Europe to transfer NATO to, you know, to being a European defense organization that doesn't involve us. We're not funding it. We're not using it to do an end run around the need for Congress to approve our foreign policy. We shouldn't be making foreign policy through NATO. You don't think that that gives us leverage and that gives us goodwill in the European world? If you go to countries in Europe, they love the United States and they need the United States because United States through NATO acts as a bulwark against Russian aggression, which has been going on especially seriously in the last decade. Well, you know, that's it's been a two-way street uh, in the conflict with Russia. and Equally? Um, I, you know, let, let's put it this way. Gorbachev said last week that we are now closer to nuclear war with Russia than we have ever been. That's a pretty dangerous state of affairs. That seems inaccurate. Look at the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, right now we got the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse going on, where we have now surrounded Russia with missiles and nuclear weapons and NATO troops for that matter. How would we feel? We have in place nuclear treaties, which Russia recently said that they were not going to be a part of because they're upset with uh, what the United States is doing in Syria. That was actually not a nuclear treaty. That was the disposal of... um, uh, of nuclear waste, mm-hmm. actually, which is important. Well, plutonium that could However, become nuclear However, the real weapons. nuclear treaty, yeah. which in fact we withdrew from, is the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. That was the foundation of nuclear arms control from which George Bush withdrew. And actually, uh, Russia, to their credit, tried to restart the uh, nuclear arms control process and invited us back in. And we have, you know, we have not uh, budged on that. We also promised uh, Gorbachev that we would not be moving one step to the east. Remember, the Warsaw Pact was the uh, counterweight 
to NATO. Yeah. The, North, the Warsaw Pact went away. And what did NATO do? NATO expanded and went east. We said we wouldn't move one inch to the east. We have. Well, so, that was at a time. I mean, Poland and Hungary and countries that are part of NATO were under Russia and Soviet control. They were client states. They were what we, was called satellite that states. That was the reason so for NATO, NATO, right? That was the yeah. reason for NATO. That reason went away, yet NATO only got bigger. So it's really important not to think, what shall we say, uh, like the um, like the only show in town here. So this was a very messy and complicated situation, but the U.S. had a hand in this messy, complicated situation as well. So it's not like there were good guys with white hats and bad guys with black hats here. Uh, there was some... Well, the world isn't that simple, but I'm... People yeah. are thinking about. So it's not that simple. So let's not let's not pretend that we can pre- that we can blame uh, Ukraine on just bad action uh, by Russia. There was what about some Crimea? bad action. Well, Crimea, remember, had a vote. Do you remember Crimea actually had a vote in which Crimea decided to secede from this new uh, Ukraine that had just had a coup? What about Russia arming rebels in Ukraine, which shot down that Dutch, that Malaysian airliner? Uh, that remains to be seen. It's not at all clear yet. Uh, the reports what just here. came out confirming that that's right. What just like we, you know, the reports confirmed yellow cake and the reports confirmed uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So you don't we believe to- reports? Well, did you believe uh, yellow cake? No, but no. Did you believe uh, weapons of mass destruction? You need to. That was an open look at question. The, the, uh, okay. Right, here's my right. here's my we, point. Here's it my overall remains a lot. There remain to be a lot of open questions, and we are now on the verge of nuclear war with Russia. Here's my overall point with Russia. People listen to the Green Party candidate. People want an alternative in this election. Two very unpopular candidates are running. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about domestic policy, I think there are a lot of people who are attracted to reigning in the power of corporations, to what Ralph Nader rightly calls the majoritarian positions of the Green Party, right? Things like environmentalism, things like jobs, things like even trade policy. But then there is the question of international affairs. And I don't, I think that most people think that Russia is or Putin is at least a menace or at least an autocrat. And there is an open question if you think that that is the case. Do you think Putin is an autocrat? Absolutely. Putin is an autocrat. And And he kills his enemies. Well, um, uh, Putin is certainly, you know, he is not... A, uh, a defender of human rights. You know, Putin's track record is a not a good one on human rights, on freedom of the press, on political expression, kills, you name he it. He kills uh, writers who he disagrees with. He orchestrates their murder. That that appears to be the case. Okay. Yes, it does. And I would not want to be in a position of defending Putin. However, you know, we need to be cautious about plunging headlong into a nuclear catastrophe, which we are verging on right now. And I do not see, I mean, Hillary Clinton, she wants to start an air war with Russia. Let's be clear. That's what a no-fly zone means. It is uh, tantamount to a declaration of war against Russia. And in the current climate, you know, what, 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 what caused the current breakdown? You know, it was the accusation that Russia has been tampering with our elections. But you know what the Homeland Security said in that same uh, article? What Homeland Security and National Intelligence said was, however, there is no evidence that the Russian, that the Russian government is involved in this. There is no evidence. They say it's just that this would be typical for Russian motives and methods. Well, you know what? Russia actually some uh, 10, 15 years ago proposed that we undertake an international treaty against cyber warfare. 
that's the only way out of this, because we're guilty of cyber warfare as well. Still, there is no evidence that Russia, in fact, is tampering with our elections. Clearly, the Democrats are incredibly embarrassed about the nature of these revelations. And they've created a smokescreen here to try to distract from that. But that smokescreen is, you know, pushing us to the brink of warfare with Russia now, where you have, you know, the uh, U.S. Um, head of defense, uh, Ashton Carter, talking about nuclear war. We just did a dry run, dropping fake nuclear bombs over Nevada. Uh, this is, you know, this is really dangerous stuff. This is not pretend. So we need to take a deep breath here. We need to step back and stop beating the war drums. In this context, Hillary Clinton is talking about starting an air war uh, with Russia, which could slide, you know, we're on the verge of nuclear war right now. The verge of nuclear war. But you were alive during the Cuban Missile Crisis when there was a hot war, when there were stated enemies, when there were like three times as many missiles as there are now in the world. I understand if you could say things aren't great, but well, well, as look, bad as it Russia, was in 1962. Did, did Russia have troops along our border? Were they doing, you know, war games? Uh, in, in, in the Caribbean? No, they were not. But that's what we're doing right now to Russia. So from our point of view, it may not seem so bad. But from Russia's point of view, they've been encroached upon. There have been missiles that have, have surrounded them now. And this has been going on for years. Now there are war games going on and exercises. And our negotiations have absolutely broken down. And both sides are moving their missiles in, you know, for, uh, for exchange. So to my mind, this is the Cuban Missile Crisis in reverse on steroids. So you have said that a nuclear war is more likely under a President Clinton than a, pre than a President Trump. Why do you think that's the case? Well, if you watched the uh, debate the other night, you would have heard Trump saying that he has no intent of, um, you know, that he's looking for collaboration. With Putin. He says a lot of things and then contradicts well, them. this is true. But he has been consistent <laughs> with his praise of Putin. I will give you that. There, Yeah, he has. I mean, for better and for worse. I would say um, for worse. Well, in many ways for worse, however. And it also seems possibly to I be motivated by his business interests rather than his acumen of uh, playing on the world stage. Yeah, absolutely. But he's got business interests all over the place. Mm -hmm. You know, on that basis, you know, wow, maybe he'd be the peace president, you oh, know, because he needs peace <laughs> all over the place. But, you know, I consider the threat of nuclear war not trivial at all. Right. And this is one of the most, I think, uh, clear and present dangers to our survival. Yeah, climate change is horrific, but it's not happening tomorrow. But why is it more likely, in your opinion, under Clinton? Again, that's a lot. I think a lot of people are looking at this election and saying, we, you talk about it all the time, the lesser of two evils. But in these people's minds, Hillary Clinton would certainly be the less, if you're talking about the lesser, she represents the lesser of two evils. And the danger of a Trump presidency isn't just his stated affection for Vladimir Putin. It's his temperament. It's his decision-making. The people with nuclear weapons aren't only the Russians. You know, he could get us into a nuclear war in many ways because of his hair-trigger temper. And so that's why I think to hear that statement that it's more likely under Hillary Clinton would well, surprise a lot of people. Put it this that way. The that. most likely uh, nuclear threat right now is with Russia. There's no doubt about that. When you have Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the, you know, the prime minister of, of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, 
saying that the threat of nuclear war is hotter now than it has ever been in all of history. You got to take that pretty seriously. And when you have Hillary Clinton then uh, beating the war drums against Russia and essentially saying that if she's elected, that we will declare war on Russia, because that's what a no-fly zone over Syria amounts to, shooting down Russian war planes. Not if they adhere to the the no-fly zone. Just well, like actually, your entire your entire scenario our, our about no Cuban fly zone, crisis however, does not adhere to international law. Okay, so if you just look at international law, uh, the current recognized government of Syria, for better or for worse, invited Russia there to uh, to participate in its civil war. This is a horrific mess, and there is you know there is no war solution. Well, here you couldn't to this put mess. the no fly zone in if, if the Russians sa- if the Russians said we we're not going to respect that. Because then that would lead to escalation. But there are ways to enforce a no-fly zone, as was done over Iraq, which wouldn't necessarily lead to a conflict. And a United States and Russia plane have not well, been involved however, in a right, air right. fight, that, that, I believe, ever. To say that, you know, just totally ignores that Russia is already in the air and is already committed to the Assad government. So, you know, for us to step in and say, no, we're taking over here, guys, that's not consistent with international law. Uh, for better or for worse, international law gives a certain recognition to existing governments. So, Russia is consistent with international law. We would be in violation of international law to go in and impose a no-fly zone and effectively declare war against Russia for being in the skies there. Is so the this best is, of let our, me just okay, clarify yes, sorry, that in ahead. terms of the nuclear threat, Hillary Clinton is a disastrous nuclear threat right now in a context where we're already off the charts in the risk of nuclear war. She has stated in this context she's essentially uh, opening up a battlefront with Russia. So to my mind, this is, you know, this, uh, this emerges as the clearest and most present danger. That's not to say we would be safe with Donald Trump. My point is we have more than two lethal choices here. Shouldn't we start with democracy? If the United States were, first of all, when you were president, you would not unilaterally disarm. There'd have to be a treaty in terms of nuclear weapons. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And what I would say is that there are Many ways we can engage the Russians on this. In fact, they've been trying to engage us on this for decades. And it's us who's been uh, slamming the door on uh, nuclear uh, disarmament progress. So, yes, we need to get into this uh, really seriously with the Russians. We don't have to offer unilateral negotiations. I don't think that's even a relevant question at this point. We're not forced to do that at all. We just have to respond to the overture that's been on the table here for decades. Which nuclear weapons would be the first to go under a Stein administration? Uh, Gee, you know, I I don't know. Um, I think that's a technical question we can approach. Right now, the weak link in the chain here is not knowing which which nuclear weapons are going to go first. It's like establishing a dialogue uh, with the Russians that begins to put us on the same page here and move us in the same direction. We have... Two minutes left, and this is the last thing I want to ask you, and it's about the idea of the lesser of two evils. I subscribe so often in my life, and I think most people do, in endorsing the lesser of two evils. Why? Because it's less evil. We want to choose things that are less evil than the alternative. Uh, If you have cancer 
you're a doctor, you might get chemotherapy. Chemotherapy is terrible on the body and it will kill you if it goes on too long, but it's the less of two evils. In other words, it could cure the cancer. So why as a principle, rejecting the lesser of two evils in this election or in life, why is that a principle you adhere to? Um, I think at this point, the lesser evil has a track record. And this philosophy that you have to vote your fears rather than your values has actually delivered everything we were afraid of. All the reasons we were told but to vote for the lesser evil. But fears are sometimes legitimate. Because, well, but consider what we've gotten. Okay. It's not legitimate if it backfires on you. All the reasons you're told to vote for the lesser evil because you didn't want the expanding wars, you didn't want the meltdown of the climate, you didn't want the offshoring of our jobs, the attack on immigrants, on freedom of the press – We've gotten all of that, you know, on steroids because we, the people, allowed our, our voices to be silenced and to allow a corporate lesser evil to speak for us. But they have the same agenda. And right now we see in this election the fusion of the Democratic and Republican parties. As the Republicans fall apart, their leadership joins together uh, with the Hillary Clinton campaign. So we have one united Demo-Republican party. It's not just this moment that we're deciding on. We have a future here which is going over the cliff right now. And this strategy of lesser evil is a race to the bottom with the greater evil. We're in a Hail Mary moment now. The clock is ticking, especially on the climate, also on nuclear weapons. And we are in a very very precarious position. The lesser evil is not going to save us. We're the ones we've been waiting for. The lesser evil argument only makes sense if, in fact, it does accomplish lesser evil, which is certainly not true to look at the track record of where we've gone. And it only makes sense if you assume there's no other option here. But there is another option. And my problem is that the lesser evil argument is used to silence the fact that there is another option. And that is what the American people are clamoring for. Democracy is not just a question of who do we hate the most. And who do we fear the most? Democracy needs a moral compass. It needs a vision. It needs an agenda that we are for. And it turns out we actually have the numbers that what we are for could actually win the day. One other thing, which is that ranked choice voting could solve this dilemma in the blink of an eye. That's an interesting way of voting that's not actually antithetical to democracy. Uh, I think San Francisco and Ireland use it. So what you do is you say, here's my first choice, number one, and here's my second choice, and here's my, you you know, you have to cut it off at some point. And this means that a vote wouldn't necessarily be thrown away. Not at all. It it absolutely ends the throwing away the vote. And we use it all over the country. Maine has it on the ballot uh, in this election to to make it uh, apply to statewide offices, there's no reason it can't be adopted right now on an emergency basis. Your legislature could change the way that votes are counted, reprogram Although the voting Although in the presidential machines. election, it would be unconstitutional given the electoral That's college. That's actually not true. Well, the electoral college. No, but this instructs the electoral college. This I is how you count the votes in your state to instruct your electoral college. What happens is if your first choice loses, your vote is automatically reassigned to your second choice. My campaign. We could use that. We could use that. Just like Nebraska and Maine have Absolutely. split electors. Yeah, that would be constitutional. Right. And and even if even if the rule in your state was a winner take all, the winner would take all based on the result of the votes counted through a ranked choice system. But here's the giveaway. The Democrats won't pass it. We filed that bill in my home state in Massachusetts the first time I ran for office against Mitt Romney as a Green back in 2002. They wouldn't let it out of committee, even though they had the votes to pass it. Why won't they let it out of committee? Because they rely on fear. They, they, re, they rely on fear in order to intimidate your vote because they can't win your vote because fundamentally it is the big corporate powers that call the shots in the Democratic Party. Although in Idaho or Utah, it would probably be the Republicans who would be against it. Whatever party dominates right. 
creates a state would whichever, be against that. It would weaken their power. Whichever sure. of these corporate parties yeah. has us by the throat will not allow it to pass. That alone is reason enough to deny them your vote because they are not on your side. Dr. Jill Stein, she's running for president. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. Great talking. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube puts his money on eight the hard way. Just producer Mary Wilson puts her money on eight the impossible way. Two twos and a four. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, always bets on black, except in the Republican primaries. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, paid off the gambling commission, but just to cut the buffet line. The gist... We'd like to apologize for formally announcing that we have the loosest slots on the strip. We realize now that we were engaging in slot shaming, and that is not okay. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.